Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The principal thing that we're really trying to do is to show people that they actually understand more about the world that they look at than they necessarily realize. There's art all around us. Many of us turn to art critics to help us make sense of it all, to guide us to what's worth seeing, and to interpret the political implications of various works. Jason Farrago is the critic at large a very big title for the New York Times. He began his career there in 2015 and takes his readers into the art world in such distant locations as Pergamon, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and Kiev, Ukraine. It's great to see you again, Jason, and welcome to my podcast here at Samsung H37. Very happy to be with you, Martha. Well, there's so many questions I have for you because uh, you're a young man, a uh, Yale graduate. Your master's degree was where? In London. In at London. the Courtauld Institute of Art, which oh, is right. this uh, very small institution with this incredible collection of painting and not more than, I don't know, 50 students a year or something. So you get to really delve into this unbelievable collection. And you became an art critic. What is the role of an art critic in your mind? Well, I can tell you what it's not, and that might even be easier than saying what it is. It's not about prescribing taste to other people and saying that the things that I like, the things that make me happy, the things that I find interesting are the things that you ought to immediately love or find interesting. The role of an art critic, the role of all critics, I should really think, is about giving readers the ability to form their own judgments in ways that are more substantial, that are more sophisticated than what you might have if you're just going on Yelp or on TripAdvisor or on Google and putting stars out of five. 
I mean, everybody's got opinions. Everybody's got taste. Yeah, you're not like a food critic. You're no. Not, you're not going into a museum and saying, these are worth seeing and these are not worth seeing. I, generally not. That's mm-hmm. right. I mean, there's always a slight sort of consumer reports, like, how should I spend my time? But that's not the principal thing that any of us really want to be doing. What we want to be doing, I think, is helping people understand the world around them at a higher level or at a deeper level than you might get if you're just scrolling through your phone or if you're just walking down the street. And I think that one of the uh, the duties of being a critic is not to just be a kind of, well, you know, the stereotype of critics, that critics are kind of frustrated, they're they, writers who couldn't get their novels published, they're, they don't know how to paint, and so they tell other painters that they're terrible. And there's... I'm not going to pretend that there isn't a small amount of truth to some people I could name, but I'm going to suggest that the principal thing that we're really trying to do is to show people that they actually understand more about the world that they look at than they necessarily realize. There might be context that they're not familiar with yet. There might be historical meaning that they're not familiar with yet. But a combination of that kind of context that I can provide and a kind of training course in how to trust your own eye and how to build your own eye. That's the real sort of aim of criticism in my book. You said that you weren't particularly exposed to art as a child. Uh, What first drew you to the art world? Well, when I was in high school, I grew up in the suburbs, just up the Hudson River from here. Where? Maranick, New York. Oh, Maranick, right near me. I'm in Bedford. (laughs) You know, we're not yet in the Hudson Valley. We're still in sort of solid Westchester County um, in the 1990s. And I would often come down here to Manhattan to go to the theater. I was a bit of a Broadway baby when I was 14, 15, 16. It wasn't that I didn't have uh, access. And I have to say I'm very lucky that I lived in sort of shooting distance of places like the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Museum of Modern Art or the Whitney right outside our door now. Um, But it wasn't necessarily something that I came to with great levels of passion. God knows I can't draw, um, and I've never had any particular facility with making art. But I think that one of the things I began to discover when I was, I don't know, about 16, 17 years old, I remember going to MoMA... um, probably to go to the movies or something, because if you had a ticket to MoMA, the movies were free. And I remember this initial encounter I had with a painting by Paul Cezanne, one of the most important of the post-impressionists of late 19th century France. It's a painting of a solitary man, a bather, who's sort of downcast. He's sort of looking down at his feet, wearing a kind of loincloth-like white bathing suit. And I remember looking at it and understanding for the first time that painters, that artists more generally, were not simply people who were there to represent reality as faithfully as the eye could possibly see it. It wasn't a matter of being as photographic as you could possibly be, but that there was some other impetus to making a painting beyond lifelikeness, beyond representation, that these, these forms, the kind of clumpy, heavy forms of Cezanne in this bather or later I remember seeing in the kind of still lives of apples and pears and things like this, that it wasn't about how many apples and pears are on the table and did you perfectly capture the shape of the apple and pear, but what sort of impression were you expressing through that depiction or what kind of individuality were you bringing to that depiction. And that's a very sort of elementary thing to have first discovered, but I I, I remember that moment as 
I wouldn't want to aggrandize it by calling it a thunderclap or anything like it, but certainly a kind of formative moment where I realized that art has functions that go beyond representation and go towards something about an internal life, uh, an external message. And I remember the excitement about that, and I don't think that's ever gone away from me. So did you just start looking at art then? I suppose I got much more serious about it around then, around the age of 16, 17, 18 years old, which is a and, and then went you to went college. to Yale. Yes. And Yale has lots of art in the in the college itself. It has two of the best museums in the East yes, Coast. That's right. Really the Yale does. University Art Gallery and, and the And you Yale studied Center. art history. I did. I actually went to study English. And, you know, I might have had pretensions of being a poet or being a novelist of some kind, like many critics do at one point in their lives. And I discovered that it wasn't for me. And I think that this is another really important point I want to make about being a critic is that the, the real gift and the lucky break I had was that I was able to look at objects in the original, that I had a museum, and not just museums, by the way, but free museums. Yeah. Didn't even have to buy a ticket. You could just walk in, look at one painting for five minutes, and walk out. An immense privilege, and one that I wish was open to everybody. Yeah. Um, though, of course, there are many free museums across this country that I want to celebrate. And I remember the... You know, this is around the year 2000. I've got a sort of early BlackBerry. The iPhone hasn't arrived yet. But certainly more and more screens are beginning to sort of infiltrate every sort of facet of our lives. And I'm not, a, you know, here to hate on technology. Technology is very important. Um, and I use it all the time in my work. But the ability to sort of oscillate between the kind of learning that I could do on the Internet and the speed that was offered by the Internet and the slowness or the permanence of paintings and objects in the collection. That was absolutely formative for me when I was younger. How did you find yourself at the New York Times to be the critic at large? What did you, what was your first piece for them? My first was it, piece Was it an the, assignment? Or it was, was it, an assignment. Oh, it was. Believe it or not, it was about Yoko Ono, oh. um, who... Um, her art? Her art and her music. Uh -huh. um, the great thing about being critic at large is that um, although, you know, visual art is kind of the core of my beat, I do roam a little more widely into music, literature, cinema, things like that. But there was a Yoko Ono exhibition in 2015 at, um, at the Museum of Modern Art, and it was an opportunity to talk about the fact that this, um, this figure, who we all know as someone who was involved with John Lennon and someone who had made all these records that were just reviled in the 1960s but have kind of been rediscovered, um, had a longer career than that and one that I could contextualize with the kind of history of Tokyo and the history of New York in the 1960s. It's something that I've always really found important for readers is not just to say, like, what you're actually looking at with your own two eyes, but where does it come from? What were the conditions under which it was made? What is the context that gave rise to certain images or certain objects? And how that can maybe make you more sympathetic, make you, give you a greater, perhaps a more three-dimensional understanding of something, and maybe even force you to question your initial reaction. I would never want to say that the only answers are in the textbooks and you shouldn't trust your eyes. It's clearly both. But learning how to kind of that push and pull game between one and the other, between knowledge and your senses, between looking and thinking. That, I think, is the task, I suppose, mm -hmm. and one of the things I find most fascinating. At Yale, what did you write your thesis on? You're never going to believe it. It's embarrassing. Uh -oh. <laughs> um, I wrote about fine artists who remade 
Hollywood movies. This was a moment, it's like really very, it's a moment when video art was becoming more and more important. And there would often be movies, uh, fine artists who would remake Hitchcock or remake um, uh, sort of like schlocky movies from the 1970s as parodies. Um, So for example, there's an artist called Stan Douglas who had a wonderful, he's actually got a mural that's in Moynihan Station. If you could go to the waiting room at Moynihan Station, Stan Douglas did the photographic mural. So when you there. say remade, they actually remade Shot it? by shot remakes oh. of, in this case, it was a film called Journey into Fear with Vincent Price and Sam Waterston, which is this sort of schlocky 1970s uh, uh, thriller. But beyond that, because I was very interested in questions about media. Again, as I say, this was a moment when things were beginning to get digital. And I was interested in what it was going to happen to artists when you could just download everything. When, you know, this was a moment when uh, Napster had just been born and you could download music for free, not entirely legally. Uh, This was a moment when uh, you were just beginning to get Netflix, though it was still DVDs that were in the mail. And what does it do to artists? Blockbuster. I'm the last generation that went to Blockbuster. It's true. And actually, I remember those little envelopes coming every single day because I I consumed movies like crazy. And you remember they'd be scratched sometimes? Oh, oh yeah. The thing would skip halfway. Unusable. It was a mess. That phenomenon of it used to be that you had to go to the card catalog in the library. You had to go to, at the beginning of my career as a student, to the slide library. Mm. If you wanted to know, uh, images that were in the past, you would literally get a lantern slide. You'd put them in the in the Kodak projector, and you would look at these things. And I watched that tide go out, and this new tide of digital imagery come in. I I I studied art history. I don't know if you know that. I do know that, but, but tell me more. But um, I had a box of little three by five like index cards, but they were all the great paintings in the world in our courses. Images that that were like playing cards and you'd go through them and you have to say who painted it, when did was it painted, what was it? So like one card would have one painting yeah, one and then painting. you'd get the name, the That's, day, yeah, all everything of that. and you would memorize all those things and look at them. Of course you're not looking at the beautiful painting, you're looking at a photograph, a bad photograph of a beautiful painting. And it was and that's all before the internet, before we had computers. And now it's so wonderful when you can just light up your screen on your computer and look at a beautiful image of a beautiful painting. It's an incredible privilege. And we look what we have here. We have this look, Monet water lily. Yeah, we have Monet water us. lilies just sitting next to us in a Samsung frame. It's crazy. That, it's crazy. And but yet, it's also weird. excellent. It's excellent. And there's something I think that when that all began in the 2000s, we didn't necessarily expect. I think around... That moment in the 2000s. Do you remember this moment when everyone was going to have these screens in their house and therefore oh, Van yeah. Gogh would be worthless? Who would need to see right. the original Starry because Night? We, because it does not do justice to the to the painting. Exactly. There's no texture. And there There's is something no very interesting to me about this, about yeah. the idea that anybody can download an incredible ultra-high-res version of the Mona Lisa, right. and yet still people will fly across the ocean. They will it. wait in line to see the real thing. And they'll go to Vermeer. You, do, you went to Vermeer. I did in Amsterdam oh. a couple months ago. Yes, the, the most beautiful exhibit ever. Tell us about that. I had the enormous privilege of going to Amsterdam at the beginning of the year to the Rijksmuseum. So Johannes Vermeer, a painter of the early 17th century and mid-17th century in Holland, uh, who's best known for uh, quite small... Uh, genre scenes or um, scenes of a, often a single person, usually a woman, uh, often doing household labor, basically middle class people or their servants. Everyday. Everyday yeah. figures. 
uh, secular imagery of uh, 17th century Holland. And there are two things to um, preface this with. The first is that the paintings themselves are pretty small, maybe two or three feet tall. And the second is that there aren't very many in this world. I think under 40, if I'm not mistaken. So any exhibition that can assemble more than a few is an event. And this one got 28 out of the 30-some-odd, 36, 7, 8, uh, of all of the surviving Where were pictures. the others? Well, um, a couple of still belong to the Met, and they were too fragile to travel. Um, there's one that belongs to the Louvre that I think it was the same thing. It was a travel thing. And then there was in Vienna at the Kunsthistorisches Museum. They chickened out at the very end. But the Frick collection, uh, which is usually in, York, in this yeah. mansion on Fifth Avenue, is under renovation right now. And therefore, exceptionally, they were able to lend the three Vermeers that they have for the first time. And that's basically how the show got started. You first get those three. Then you got the ones that are already in the Netherlands. Then you call someone, you say, well, we got these three. What if you give us your two? And then the ball, it, then everything began to snowball. And as critic at large, what, what did you find? There was some kind of, the word I used in the review, if I remember correctly, was something like deceleration. It, it slows you down. Um, th there was, it, th these things have an ability, after almost 400 years, 350 years, to bring you out of this sort of constant flood of images and information and force you to concentrate. I think one of the real things I try to do with my writing, and I think that art should do more generally, is to revive powers of concentration and to show people that there are different ways of looking and different tempos of looking. It's not to say that like looking at images on your phone is terrible. I have Instagram too. It's great. But that there are different moments that require different kinds of looking. And one of the incredible abilities of a masterpiece by someone like Vermeer is to return to you that ability to look slowly, to look closely, and I think also to rediscover your own place in this world. And the idea that someone who is long dead, who lived somewhere very far from where you lived, can still do that to you, that for me is the definition of a masterpiece. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags, and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if you... no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. 
I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I've read just today, I read a few of your articles just in preparation, and uh, I have the beautiful article on Hokusai's uh, woodcuts in Japan. This is a show at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Yes, and then Erdogan, and then you go to Turkey, and you revisit the Hagia Sophia. You see the... Turkey has more fabulous ruins than Greece. Correct, yes. And that is a, an amazing fact, and people don't know that until you start reading about Turkey, and then you worry about them. Absolutely. I mean, the Trojan War. I mean, oh. Troy is on the west coast of that's, Turkey. That's right. You worry so much about who's taking care of all these treasures. And then, of course, uh, the Ukraine, and you went, you went there to try to understand, uh, is anybody taking care of the artworks and the culture of a country under siege. This paragraph really got to me. But the risks to Ukrainian culture are more than mere collateral damage. For President Vladimir Putin of Russia, there is no Ukraine as such. He maintains that Ukraine is a Soviet fiction, that the Ukrainian language is a Russian dialect, that Russians and Ukrainians are one people. So why destroy one people, one of the two people? Exactly right. You you bring up so much in your articles. I mean, it's just mind-boggling, really. And as critic at large, I think that's your job. But the scope is very broad. You're right. The scope is very broad. Well, you know, I have a very strong interest in cultural preservation and hardly just in times of war and everything from, you know, classical architecture to how our museums collect things. And every war— in dangerous culture. Syria, we know from oh. last year. I mean, horrible destruction in Syria. Um, before that, in uh, in Iraq and in, in Afghanistan. But what made this war different in Ukraine is exactly what you were just reading out, is the idea that this war has cultural aims from the start, that it is about religion, language, territory, history, topics like this. And therefore, I believe very much my responsibility as a critic to reckon with. That doesn't mean that you go and look at the sufferings of others and you kind of stroke your beard and you give it like a thumbs up or a thumbs down. That no. would be a barbaric thing to right. do. But to to bring 
the tools that I have to bear alongside the incredible reporters and photographers and all the other people who clarify what is happening in horrible situations like this, to try to pull back a little bit, to contextualize, and to give readers an understanding that things that are um, immediate actually have deep roots and that have longer histories. So are they saving? Are they protecting? Absolutely. I met some extraordinary figures who, for example, are working on stained glass in the churches in uh, across the country. And so when you get to um, over the border from Poland, there I, I met these two guys who were managing these mountains of uh, styrofoam peanuts, uh, bubble wrap, uh, uh, protective gloves, uh, emergency sprinkler systems. Mm. You know, when the war began, they didn't have the uh, the preparation for these kinds of emergencies. You, let's say, you know, you have a bunch of paintings and you want to put them in the basement to keep them from harm. Well, that's great, but what if the basement is damp? What if the lighting conditions are not correct? What if it's dusty? Getting people those tools and those immediate needs was something that I was very, very, very happy to discover. And that was happening, by the way, not necessarily at the government level, but at the level of volunteers. These were people who took it upon themselves. And it was one of the most extraordinary and most inspirational things that I was able to see is that both inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine, you have people who were ready to stand up and say, we have to save these things. And that these things are meaningful, not just for local people, but for all of human civilization. Well, that's that's admirable. And I I certainly hope it, it continues and that the craziness ends one of these days. It's hard to wake up in the morning uh, and look at the newspaper. Do you find that as a, as a journalist? Enormously or? so. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I'm not ashamed to admit that one function of writing about art is to give people a break from the kind of endless succession of crises um, that it can sometimes feel that we're living through. At the same time, I don't believe that um, it's only a vacation, right? Like from... Um, and, and I think that one of the things that culture can do is clarify the conditions that we're living through so that, you know, if you look at the economy or if you look at the climate or if you look at the political system, you might actually think, well, it reminds me of this thing that Goya painted in the 19th century. Or it reminds me of how Manet was thinking when Manet was looking at new technologies or things like that. You know, if you look at, say, artificial intelligence and all of these debates that we're now having around artificial intelligence and what is that going to do to our society? What is that going to do to our democracy? I think that there are lots of examples that can be drawn from from earlier forms of culture that can, there are no one-to-one answers that you can apply from the past, but they can they can lead us in better directions than, than where we might be going now. When looking at a piece of art, old, new, ancient, uh, what do you, what do you look for? You try to come with as few preconceptions as you can, and you try to engage with the thing that's in front of your eyes first at the level of just pure forms, colors, shapes, lines, textures, patterns, things like that. And even if you know that the image that you're looking at is an image of the Madonna and child, or it's an image of water lilies or something, that you hope is something that comes after an initial engagement with the appearance of something and also the way in which it's made. And I think that that's, of course, what distinguishes art from just the pictures that I take on my phone every Mm -hmm. day, is that there is a, a meaning or an importance to these things that goes beyond 
communication. It goes beyond pure representing of some other thing, right? And so trying to just look, I'm not going to tell you it's easy, um, but to, to, to strip away a lot of the things that you already know or the prejudices that you might bring to something and to just say, what is it? How is it made? How is it constructed? That, I think, took me many, many years to get comfortable with. And I think that one of the goals I have as a critic is to convince people that actually all of us are able to do this. It's just that we have a lot of preconceptions that we bring to things. And it's about slowing down and it's about looking and it's about trusting your own eyes. So yeah, those sensations, those visual sensations do always come first. Do you visit museums a lot? Every week. Every week. Everywhere. Yes. And I only recently began to appreciate, and it's, this is an embarrassing and very sort of chauvinistic New York thing to admit, is that I go to Europe a lot for work. I've been to Asia. I've been to Latin America. I've been to Africa. And I have neglected the United States a little bit. I've often felt very guilty about this. And so last summer, I did a road trip to uh, Cleveland, Detroit, Toledo, Ohio, one of the best museums in the United States oh, is in yeah. Toledo, Ohio, which is of course the glassmaking capital. Uh, Oberlin College, of course, university museums across this country are just extraordinary in terms of what they provide. Chicago and Detroit are fantastic. Chicago, oh. I mean, the Art Institute is... Isn't that a mind-boggling a place? A mind-boggling place. Yeah. And also a place that's almost like just, it's like the perfect size for a single day. Like, I adore the Metropolitan Museum right here in New York, but it can be exhausting if you that's try to do week. too much. A it's week. a week. Yes. The Art Institute is at the same sort of level, I think, in terms of excellence. And yet the experience is so pleasant. Um, and so I, light. And I, you know, but I've still got real holes in my map. I've never been, for example, to St. Louis, a very important museum, the oh, St. Louis I've been there. Art Museum. See, I'm lucky because oftentimes when I, when I write a new book, they ask me to come and speak. Right. Uh, to, a, to some sort of group. And I always get to go to the museums, which is always so great. Because you do, you, when you go to all these cities, I think I've been to every big city in America as a result of my, my book travels. And uh, you get to see everything. I should keep up with you. And there's one other thing about these other muse- museums in America is that in cities that have a few, where tourist dollars are a smaller percentage of the kind of annual revenue at these museums, these museums can really do incredible things for education and for local communities um, that really cannot and should not be neglected. The question of funding and fundraising for these institutions is something that I'm very concerned about as well. And getting people, especially at a young age, into these museums and making them believe that they're not elite institutions. They're not institutions that are sort of up on a hill and they're only for people who... Um, no, uh, they should be all-inclusive. Absolutely. But what a great job you have. Well, thank you. It and I think a that great job. It's important to give people faster and slower kinds of writing. I mean, the kinds of writing that you can get on Twitter to get an immediate uh, impression of something. This is also important. I'm not here to say not otherwise. What's your favorite social media? I suppose Instagram. Yeah. Um, Though, you know, when Instagram got... You uh, could educate a lot of people. Absolutely. And also there is a difference between the kind of images that you might put on a on the grid, as the kids say nowadays, with a sort of high-gloss, perfect image, and the sort of more informal images that people might have in an Instagram story yeah. that I like. I like the idea that there might be different ways of, of presenting images, right. some high-quality, some a little faster. But at the same time, you know, uh, 
I am interested in what Instagram and other social media has done to our experience of art. I'm sure you've had this experience where you go to a museum and you're looking at something that you've wanted to see your whole life. And what do you see? You see everybody holding up their phones and taking a picture. Right. And, you know, I take pictures too. I'm not here to say it's the devil's work. But is there something that these phones are doing to our mentalities? Well, is it it preserving a memory or is it kind of like making that memory only a, a moment. That's, that's what I worry about. And I, when I look at a painting now, I want it to remain in my brain, but I sometimes think, well, I, there's so much to learn and so much to see. If I take a picture of it, will I remember it better? That's something that I feel too, and I worry about it because I wonder how much of the kind of logic of the phone has been internalized in my brain now, right? That I think like a phone. That's what's happening. I just went to the Costume Institute. Did you do anything on the The Carl Lagerfeld show? Yes. Uh, I have been, and I've read the catalog. My colleague Vanessa Friedman wrote a fantastic story, and I've always been interested in Lagerfeld. And what did you think of the exhibit? I... Honestly. Honestly? Well, you're gonna put I, me in the spot here. No, I'll no, tell you. I'll tell no, you. I just the, went. I'll tell you what I the, think, the, but you the, tell the, me the, what the you thought. The truth is, I think Karl Lagerfeld is an unbelievably fascinating figure who might not have been the most important couturier of the 20th century. And in particular, the fact that the show blends the work that he did for Chanel, the work that he did for Fendi, the work that he did um, uh, under his own name or for earlier labels, um, sort of gives a kind of false impression. He was always a, a brilliant creator of brands and of images, and of mm-hmm. Chanel in particular. Um, but he, I'm not sure he was ever a true artist in the way that someone like Yves Saint Laurent might have been. So I think that blending all of those together was... Well, what did you think of the exhibit, too, the way it was set up? Yeah, it's done, if you haven't seen the show, um, in a kind of maze of white walls, and there are these kind of contrasts. So it'll be like um, technology versus handmade, or lots of frills versus very minimal. I was surprised to see that they had spent so much money on Tadeo Ando. Yes. But you couldn't see the clothes very That's well. That's right, because the mannequins are actually stacked two yes. high or even three high. I, I couldn't even see the workmanship on any of the dresses up that were in the upper alcoves. I mean, this this show, by the way, is, uh, is it's a pretty big show. Pretty, oh, it's very uh, large, yeah. A lot of uh, pieces, but the architecture, they built these elaborate, elaborate mazes of alcoves in which each mannequin was placed. And uh, you couldn't see, I, right. I couldn't see. I couldn't, and one I'm, reason that's regrettable is the show opens with these interviews with the um, uh, with the experts, with the craftswomen that Karl Lagerfeld had worked through for his yes. whole life. And these are true, true artisans. Yes, they are. I um, love those ladies. Um, you're just back from Art Basel. That's right. And so that was in... In Switzerland. In Switzerland. The real Art Basel. The real Art Basel. Yeah. Basel, Basel, as we yeah. sometimes call it, in right. the city of Basel, Switzerland. Uh, what was the most spectacular thing that you saw this year? In At the fair? Yeah. Um, there was a booth of German art of between World War I and World War II by artists like Otto Dix, but these incredible German and Austrian artists who were making these images of real uh, sort of danger and surprise, images of sort of lush life, prostitution, working class life, um, also um, the kind of political crises that were taking place in Germany in the 1920s. And Otto Dix in particular, an artist who uh, was a sort of war hero in World War I and who then is sort of denounced by the subsequent Nazi regime, there were these watercolors by him that were just, I mean, the most 
gorgeous, but also like very disturbing really? uh, things I could have possibly seen. I love it. Art Basel is special because it really is where the galleries from all over the world bring their absolute, absolute best stuff. And the great thing is that as a critic, I have no responsibilities there. <laughs> it's not like I'm trying to sell, right? Like, you know, everyone else is there to make money. I'm just there to look. Art Basel started in 1970 and it has a, it does have quite a tremendous influence in the art world, doesn't it? That's right. I mean, yeah. it started as a trade fair, right? It's in a warehouse, and there are these temporary booths, and galleries from all around the world bring uh, the things that they want to sell to an international clientele. But since, I guess, around 2000, which was when Art Basel opened a second edition in Miami Beach, it became a kind of, almost like a lifestyle brand, in which there was a kind of, not just the things that were there to be bought and sold, but a whole cornucopia of events and talks and dinners and parties and promotions. It got really out of hand. You think so, yeah. Certainly in its Miami iteration. I know people will go down to Miami. They will go. They will party. They will drink other people's champagne. And they will never even walk into the fair and look at art in the first place. I went this year. Did uh, you? To Miami, yeah. What was it like? I mean, because um, it's really changed in Miami. Yeah, it was – there were some some nice pieces – on nothing of the highest caliber, not like what you're describing in, in Basel Basel. But it's it is a useful place to go if you really are interested to see what's happening in the contemporary world. That's right. Yeah. So I, I think that that's and and it's fun. It is fun. It is really fun though it can get really crowded. You know what the other really nice thing about it, um going to Basel in Basel is in Miami you go swim on the beach. In Basel there's the river. The river that runs the Rhine that runs through the city, and it's clean enough to swim in. Oh wow! And so, before you go in or after you go in, people just like strip down to their bathing oh, wow. suit. They pop in the water for fifteen minutes, and then you can go to your next meeting. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us about your close read. This is interesting on the New York Times.com. Yeah, site. this is a series that we began during the pandemic. We um, meaning you? We meaning me and a spectacular producer I work with called Alicia DeSantis, who is an absolutely ace digital producer. When the pandemic began in March of 2020, all of the critics had to really rethink what we were going to do when the sort of week-by-week rollout of new things just wasn't taking place. So what we came up with was that we were going to do a kind of digital deep dive into a single work of art. Uh, And each sentence that I wrote could be associated with a region on the picture. So you would scroll on your phone, and as, or it could also be on the desktop. And as you scrolled, the image would zoom in, zoom out, it would pan to the left or the right. And so I was able, I had this incredible tool now to say, and if you look at this, you'll see that. And if you look at that, you'll see that. And if you compare this to that, you'll see a transition or a contrast. And so um, that... It was very much kind work? of born out work? of necessity. How does that work with a giant painting that's pretty much like one color? Well, we did that, <laughs> actually. It's funny, with um, a painting by Jasper Johns, uh, which is almost entirely gray. Yeah. If you zoom in very closely, and this is, I think, one of the real privileges of the technology, you can see that something that looks gray actually has a richer uh, undertones of blues and reds and things like that. But ultimately, yes, you're right. This is something that doesn't immediately benefit from a kind of uh, megapixel zooming in the way yeah. that, say, a Renaissance painting does. And so what you're or trying Vermeer, to do, Or Vermeer, yeah. exactly, where there's that real precision. And so beautiful up close. Yeah. And so what you want to do when you're looking at something more abstract is to say, you know, again, it's that question about what is the thing that's actually right in front of my mind, in front of my eyes, other than it's a gray painting. Well, how did it become a gray painting? What What is the shape? What are the contents? What uh, tools were made to use it? We have a great demand for them, which is which is great, except Keep that they're, going. They, I know they take forever. <laughs> they're real artisanal work. And I've got an incredible team, incredible team that I work with at the New York Times yeah. um, uh, with whom I'm able to build this. This is not a solo act. It starts which, with, which paintings have you done already? Let's see. So, so we did, did the Jasper Johns. Right. We did uh, a Hokusai, a, a beautiful print by Hokusai, which was looking at how art from Japan would uh, influence art in the West. Uh, we did a, um, a beautiful altarpiece by Parmigianino oh, in I love, Florence. I love. We did a collage. It was about the invention of collage. The most one, the one that we did most recently is interesting. It's a medieval manuscript, and it was about um, uh, it was about calendars. It was the invention of the calendar and how uh, how different civilizations have 
depicted the passage of time and how from ancient Egypt and the Aztecs to that my Google time. calendar yeah. that keeps pinging on my phone, how we represent time and how those representations of time shape our world. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, it's about looking closely at an individual thing, but then also hopefully by the end of it, you're like, oh, well, this is directly applicable to my life in terms of, you know, the images that I send to my phone or the things that are happening in the news each day. What happened to NFTs? Non-fungible. Are you going to make me talk about <laughs> NFTs, no, Martha? You, you no, 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 let's do it. Why to. not? Why not? You don't I mean, have to. The thing about, I mean, Crazy, right? Insanity. Insanity. I mean, a hustle. Let's just call it what it was. It was, it was a, a hustle. hustle. I, I did a couple. Did you really? Yeah, and they sold. And, and I wonder yeah, what their are, value is now. These are, well, I wonder. <laughs> you with, got with, with Bitcoin and Ethereum way down, but not so far down as they could have been. And they're coming back. Absolutely. But do you know what I found interesting about Crypto all of that curse. talk about crypto and the NFTs was that a lot of the kind of tone or the rhetoric around these NFTs was uh, the institutions are evil, these gatekeepers are so terrible, uh, these awful critics and these awful museums control everything. But now with Bitcoin, with blockchain, you are going to be free. You are going to be liberated. Uh, there's going to be no walls. And what happened? Of course that didn't happen. Of course it just turned out that it's another kind of gatekeeping, another uh, form of elitism. It was also, by the way, an ecological catastrophe. You know those things took enormous amounts of uh, oh, of power they did. To, um, to generate. Uh, to generate. Yeah. Now, who are some new artists uh, that we should know about? Or old artists who we don't know enough about and we should know more? That's, okay. that's a better, even a better question because... There are some, you know, when you walk through museums, I was, when I was on my way to the Lagerfeld, there were so many paintings by artists that I sort of knew but didn't really know, and, and they're hanging on that wall, so mm-hmm. they must be important. But And that, I think, is a real role of these museums and of my job as a critic, is to rediscover or to reorient people's uh, attention away from the, the the classics and towards things that might have been neglected. I mean, one of the most exciting things that's happened in the last 10 or 20 years has been looking at women who were uh, not working women in obscurity. Women Yeah, but who yeah. were not working in obscurity in the 19th and 20th but century, but were neglected. We're not talking about people who were, you know, oh, like I, staying at home and had no contact with... It was with- not so long ago. I remember Helen Frankenthaler. She came to our house for dinner. Is but, that no, right? but, but nobody was buying her art. No way. And now look at these look at these museums doing one woman shows of all these beautiful Helen Frankenthal. It's unbelievable how quickly that changed, and it's 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 you know very rapid. People can complain a lot about the um, the status of our institutions. I don't think they've been so bad on this question. Yeah. Um, and you know the last Venice Biennale, for example, um, which was organized by Cecilia Alemani, a wonderful. Italian curator who uh, directs the High Line here in New York, that show was maybe about 90% women. And some of the figures in that show, I mean, everyone from people like Josephine Baker, who um, is someone who was famous, but who we didn't take as seriously as a, um, as a creative figure and also, of course, as a war hero, to uh, a sculptor like Elizabeth Catlett, an African-American sculptor who uh, went to Mexico and was very involved in in Aztec and pre-Columbian forms of art. Mm-hmm. And then looking at more contemporary painters, I mean, you asked me about people that you should keep your eye on. There's a painter I adore called Jacqueline Humphreys, who I think is doing some of the most interesting work about digital technology out there. Mm-hmm. And what is her medium? It's not NFTs, it's painting. She uses oil and acrylic on canvas. 
And yet the way in which these abstract paintings that she makes reflect or mimic or challenge the kind of um, images that we see on our screen is so revealing, I think, for now, for how we all experience life in that kind of space between um, our eyes and our screens. So that would be, I guess, one example I could give you. So here's just a couple rapid-fire questions. Favorite museum? The Kunsthistorisches in Vienna. It is one of the greatest collections in the world, but also the building is insane. It has these (laughs) incredible murals. Favorite place to travel to see art? Mexico City. It's got an amazing contemporary art scene. It's really fresh. And yet it also has unbelievably great antiquities and anthropology museums. And of course, there's Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera's house. The architecture is stunning. I think Mexico City would be my answer. More than Madrid. I love Madrid. Maybe a second choice. (laughs) All-time favorite piece of art. The Luncheon on the Grass by Manet, um, 1862. The moment when you really see modern painting being born and the paintings are going from being something that was uh, just a kind of representative document to something really modern. The last work of art you saw that you can't stop thinking about. There's a painting in the Jewish Museum right now um, of images of World War One, of these sort of destroyed fields um, that John Singer Sargent made. We think about Sargent for these sort of beautiful portraits of high society women. And yet when World War One came around, he actually became a war artist. And I think about that all the time, about how, mm. you know, life might throw things at you and suddenly you got to do something new. I'm going to look for that picture. Well, you can read uh, Jason's reviews in the New York Times in print, online, and via the New York Times app. And check out his Instagram page at Jason Farrago. Jason, what a pleasure. And thank you so much for spending time with me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Martha. Thank you. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. 
Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.